Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. On today's episode, we discuss the spending review and you ask us, why won't Labour hold a free vote on a possible Brexit deal? So we had the spending review yesterday with a few headline announcements on the public sector pay freeze, which was already trailed, the cut to the overseas aid budget and a levelling up agenda, among other things. To start off with, Anush, you wrote a piece to market coming out, arguing really that the discourse we've had in recent times about the end of austerity wasn't really quite accurate. Could you sort of explain that take on the spending review? Sure. I've been tracking this for quite a long time now, sort of ever since Philip Hammond, the former chancellor in 2018, said the era of austerity is finally coming to an end. And so I've been judging the government against that standard since then. And, and to be honest, it has sounded like rhetoric. Sajid Javid repeated the claim. And then, you know, it was clear that Boris Johnson wanted to spend more on public services with his levelling up agenda and his infrastructure projects and things. So, you know, it's been more difficult to separate rhetoric from reality since the Boris Johnson administration came in, particularly when coronavirus arrived, because obviously the state grew massive with the need for spending on, in all sorts of areas to try and protect the country as we go through the crisis. So it's quite easy then to lose sight of, well, hang on, how much are they actually spending or how much are they actually planning on spending in non-COVID times on those core public services? And, you know, will departmental spending actually go up and will the state expand to try and increase, you know, the UK's resilience in the recovery and in the aftermath of this huge economic shock. And actually, when you looked at the spending review yesterday, Rishi Sunak had, you know, so many eye-wateringly huge figures to announce, whether or not that was the borrowing figures or the money that he was committing on the continued coronavirus response. But when you actually look at the non-COVID spending next year, that drops by 10 to 12 billion, according to the OBR, on departmental day-to-day spending in comparison to what was planned in March. So there has been a decision to spend less mm. on no non-COVID stuff by next year. So that, to me, although it's not sort of actively cutting budgets, is an austere kind of approach 
to the way that we recover in the short term from the crisis. And of course, there's there's no COVID-related funding planned after next year, which that seems kind of quite optimistic, because obviously we know about the the longer term effects, even if the vaccine is rolled out when they want it to be, and life starts to return to more of a <laughs> to, to normal next spring, there's still going to be the need for that for that kind of spending. So what what's clear to me is that there hasn't been sort of a, an about turn in the role in ideas about the role of the state and how to protect people and how to um, protect public services when we come out of an economic crisis. So it kind of looks like looks like we haven't learned the lessons from last time round in terms of austerity not being the solution that the Conservatives so want it to be. So that's why really, and, and throughout this pandemic, I have kind of noticed, you know, there's been little signs, maybe it's not the sexiest subject, but, you know, in the little ways that council funding and social care funding has worked, it hasn't really changed, you know, that sort of orthodoxy regarding public spending in those kind of areas has has they've stubbornly kind of stuck to to a sort of austerity agenda you know in all but cuts if you see what i mean either not increasing funding or letting things slide in terms of you know the the budget black holes that lots of councils have that have increased because of coronavirus not really funding those properly and the most telling part of the spending review for for me was that there was announced a 4.5% increase in in core funding for councils but three quarters of that is based on the idea that councils will increase their council tax by 5%. So really that's a tax rise to pay for council funding rather than an increase in central government funding for councils and that that's a, that's that's a sort of very austere approach relatively in these new times that we live in. And it's worth emphasizing, like you say, that non-COVID spending is significantly lower than it was expected to be in March. But even in March, when we weren't factoring in COVID so much into economic plans, the Institute for Fiscal Studies was making the case that even though spending for those departments was increasing a bit again, a lot of the original cuts in the first round of austerity hadn't been reversed and most departments already had austerity basically baked in because they weren't back to their pre-2010 levels and nowhere close. So even in March, there was a case to be made that we weren't seeing the end of austerity, but doubly so, as you say, now. Stephen, you were also covering this yesterday and we're in a kind of funny place. I don't know if you agree where we are talking about, I mean, Anusha's made the case that austerity never really ended and that there's austerity in these numbers already. But we're kind of in a place where I think George Parker at the FT talked about the sort of the pivoting in Rishi Sunak's speech between still emphasizing the the generosity of the state at this point but also sort of paving the way for more austerity down the line yeah i think the interesting thing is is that you can essentially split government fiscal policy over the the conservative decade into three phases phase 1 from 2010 to 2017 was one in which there was a rhetoric of austerity and a reality of austerity. Although, of course, the striking thing, particularly in its most electorally successful phase, so the 2010 to 15 phase, was it was a rhetoric of, we have a plan A, we're going to cut like blazes. And they did cut a huge amount, but it was 
very carefully and cleverly targeted in a way that meant that it mostly happened to people outside the walls of David Cameron's electoral coalition. And long-term listeners from the podcast will, you know, be starting to have trauma flashbacks when I always do the chorus of, you know, the affluent elderly, dual earner couples without children, people who benefited from help to buy, right? That, that coalition of people did not experience cuts directly. They were a thing that happened to someone else. And even within that, I don't mean this to belittle the, the social cost of those cuts. There was a, a U-turning on some of the rhetoric of the original cuts and a huge amount of capital spending designed to get growth to come back after we looked to be veering into a double dip recession. Then you had like phase two of, of the government's sort of austerity approach after 2017 when they when it's like austerity is over, open brackets, unless you're a local council. And now we've kind of got a new phase where it's like the rhetoric is they're very scared about actually using the word austerity, but the rhetoric is like fiscal rectitude is back. And of course, tax rises in a downturn are themselves a form of austerity. And the methods are in some ways quite similar. We've gone from like devolving the acts by devolving the cuts to local government by taking away their grant. And now we're devolving the austerity of tax rises by going, well, we're not raising taxes yet. Of course, if the councils don't raise it, they will go bankrupt. But, like, you know, the, the reality is, right, in terms of the, the challenge Rishi Sunak is purporting to set himself, which is to, you know, get our debt under control, in inverted commas. Well, like, the package of cuts announced, yeah, does not touch the sides, right? Like, we are literally at, like, kind of like, oh, my plan to get a mortgage is, like, not to have a Mars bar every week. Well, okay, you'll have enough for a mortgage in a thousand years. I think that's quite an interesting place for them to be in because austerity is still really popular as a political concept. It's just people get really cross the second it happens to them. And yeah, it does feel like we've kind of, we now have like a third phase of like, oh yeah, we're mean and hard and, and the cuts are the cuts are coming. There are some very painful cuts that were announced yesterday, but I am less convinced that they won't end up in the kind of like Osborne welfare cuts of 2015 zone of having to be like, I know we said that the pay freeze was great, but actually we're not going to do it. One of the measures that was introduced yesterday was a four billion levelling up fund, which means that MPs can bid for a particular project in their constituencies. And one of the conditions is that they have to be completed before the next election, which makes them quite electorally appealing. But that's relatively speaking quite a small sum of money and one of the questions that we could have considered for you ask us was asking us whether this is a signal that really there's no substantial plan on leveling up anymore do you think that's the case that given the disruption of coronavirus this government has a leveling up strategy in name only so i guess i don't think the government has ever had a theory like i think like the Conservatives have just had an utterly wild decade, like ideologically and politically. And I think like the fact that like Labour's wild decade has been like noisier has kind of obscured just how wild and in many ways hilarious one of the most successful parties in the democratic world deciding it's the tribune of people who've been left behind. It's like left behind by who, mate? But all of this comes back to the fact that like the coalition for what do you want to call it, Thatcherism or neoliberalism or Cameronism, that electoral coalition has a Brexit-shaped fissure in it. We then have like a bunch of promises, a bunch of pledges, and actually like a bunch of actually implemented policies designed around like, okay, how are we going to get more lead voters to vote for us? It's not coherent, not least because like, you know, the MPs haven't changed. The MPs still believe the things the MPs believe, and they still want to do the things they want to do. And I think that 
yeah, and people who are more yeah, recent listeners will, yeah, they're kind of like, look, something's got to give here with these pledges. I think all that's really happened is that we knew that like some event was going to force the fact that there's no substantive idea about like what this means beyond lead voters who didn't vote for us before 2017 continue to do so, right? Just about managing doesn't mean anything. Levelling up doesn't mean anything. And all that's happened is the coronavirus has kind of like forced the moment where it's like, yeah, this this the meaningless concept has been exposed. I'd agree with that. And that's kind of it's similar to what Gordon Brown was telling us, wasn't it? When we interviewed him last week, he was sort of saying that it felt to him more like rhetoric cooked up for the election rather than, you know, something that had substantial policy ideas and funding weight behind it. And with this specific announcement in the spending review of the four billion, it does seem kind of like an arbitrary amount of money. And also because of the way that the bidding seems like it will work, it looks like MPs again will have will have a say in putting in for their own local area, which has caused Labour to call it pork barrel politics. And to be honest, that attack line from Labour is not is not an unfair one, considering what's happened to the Towns Fund, the unravelling of, of the way that the Towns Fund works with both the NAO and the Public Accounts Committee sort of finding problems with the, with the transparency of how the places, the towns that are going to receive the funding were picked. And, you know, the most recent ruling or finding from the Public Accounts Committee was that they're, they're not convinced that the selections weren't fueled by a political bias. So the government sort of does have form on at least allowing quite a bit of discretion to ministers and MPs on on the places that sort of win this this kind of levelling up funding. And it seems to be, you know, weighted towards or, or favouring <laughs> marginal seats that Tories want to keep hold of. So I can see why there's a lot of scepticism and criticism of that that levelling up announcement as well. And, you know, to be honest, if it is going to be a political project like that, fine, you know. <laughs> I mean, this is part of politics. This is what the government does. But I mean, don't pretend that it's some kind of big agenda to redistribute the country's economy because it's clearly not and it, it hasn't shown any of that ambition. So, you know, it's perfectly understandable and I think fair to, to think that the levelling up agenda is, it was only really ever a political slogan that that is having sort of political manifestations. Whenever like a serious person in the Tory party proposes actual plans to level up so like you know Rachel Wolf wrote a piece on this in Conservative Home recently and yeah the think tank Onward does lots of stuff on this so Mm. they come up with like loads of like pretty sensible like solutions lots of them like the ones which would look pretty comfortable in any Labour manifesto from like 97 to 2019 and then like somewhere very deep in the text is a like mumble mumble taxes would have to go up mumble mumble (laughs) and it's just like you know, ultimately, like, if, if if you're not willing to, like, engage with questions of funding, right, like, mm. whether that's going, you know, low interest rates are a new normal, and that gives governments more flexibility, whether yeah. it's like the Tory party deciding to learn MMT, like, whatever option you want to take, unless you're willing to do one of like, the three options of borrow more, tax more, deciding it's not constrained. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you just end up in this, like, weird cul-de-sac. And I suppose the fact of having a fund like that available for bids is in and of itself revealing of a lack of strategy because if if you literally think of leveling up that entire area and sort of smoothing out any economic disparities across the nation you'd be doing a a sort of a broader cost benefit analysis in terms of where infrastructure projects should be where investment 
would be best placed not just in terms of the immediate locality but the sort of the wider network should that be in cities with the benefit for the surrounding area or does it need to be in towns what about rural infrastructure that clearly the ability to just bid for this kind of thing eliminates that kind of joined up thinking and as you say Anush like massively favors you know people in marginal seats who can point to an obvious nice shiny infrastructure project that has been delivered before the next election but it might not be delivering for the local people in any significant way yeah before we move on to the next part of the podcast we have had a number of questions in you ask us about this idea of this metaphor about the country maxing out its credit card as a sort of analogy for using a household debt as an analogy for national debt and I know that Alva you were tweeting about this yesterday and Stephen you wrote a piece about it too so I'd be interested in hearing from both of you first of all why can't you make that analogy and second of all one of the questions is about how you persuade the the media to stop talking in those terms. I don't know if this is an opinion I've ever actually expressed on this podcast but I actually do feel quite strongly that economics is really complicated just from having friends who are economists who have spent years and years and years studying and and working for their PhDs in economics. My overwhelming feeling is that obviously economics is political and politics involves economics, but that there probably should be a greater place for economists in our discussion around those things. And so in general, I kind of personally like to stick to sort of just the political aspects of the economics and would rather defer to economists and I think we saw the the trickiness of people who are primarily political journalists covering real economic issues yesterday in some of the discussion around this I mean basically we just saw a lot of the common household budget metaphors used to describe the UK economy so things about you know balancing the books and there was one comparison to the UK economy's credit card being maxed out which has attracted particular ire and I let Stephen talk about that one in particular but in general I suppose it's a it's a very easy and appealing metaphor to use that kind of simple analogy to convey complex ideas around economics but the problem is that it's so it's so fundamentally contested and skewed because obviously any thinking person considering it for for one second can see that of course a household budget or an individual person's finances don't operate anything like a nation's economy you can't print your own currency you can't look at inflation rates you you can't run a deficit of of billions and I think that it's tricky because I don't think that this was done intentionally, unlike lots of people responding to my tweet who, who did seem to think that I was calling out a conscious BBC bias. I don't actually think that it is a conscious bias. It's just that that is such a familiar metaphor to reach for that it's become a part of our discourse around this with no real awareness of that being a fundamentally contested idea like I basically I wouldn't have a problem with a conservative MP being on a politics show using that kind of analogy because even though I've just spelled out the reasons why it doesn't really work as an analogy it's the kind of argument that you expect from a conservative but we can't really have it from objective political 
reporters and commentators because it's it just skews the debate and you really need to be reflecting the plurality of views on that anytime you're covering it but Stephen do you want to talk about the maxed out credit card issue in particular right so the reason why the analogy doesn't work this feels very strange because I am recording uh, the week in Westminster this week and so I'm you know actually literally in the BBC right now oh, you're gonna you're gonna burst into flame <laughs> so the reason why it doesn't work it, it's one of those things where it's just like even if you are deeply worried about government debt the reasons to be worried about it have very little to do with having a maxed out credit card like it's just not how it works at all so like essentially like governments have two ways that they can fund their commitments outside of raising taxes. The first is that they can borrow money on the open market, yeah, essentially by selling debt, and they then pay interest on this. Now, for a variety of reasons, many of which I would argue are, are, are not good, and actually it would probably be a positive thing if this changed and would actually free up government in lots of other ways. Yeah, like There's very little appetite by the private sector to consume or to invest. There's very little risk for it, appetite for risk by lots of investors. So savers basically like crowd into government debt because it's the only game in town at the moment. So that means in government's capacity to fund their activities through borrowing is very high. And some people, including Howard Davis, a regular guest with us on fiscal events, thinks that one of the things, and lots of people think one of the things that governments need to do is borrow more because that will create a more normal interest rate environment in the long term. That will create more public sector, private sector risk taking. And then although that will then mean that governments have less freedom in terms of their ability to borrow, they will acquire much greater freedom in terms of their ability to raise revenue. The other way you can raise, yeah, the, yeah like the other ways that you can raise more revenue short of raising taxes or, or borrowing is just for you to use your central bank, which obviously we have to print money and to issue bonds. Now, it is contested by economists, you know, what limits there are on that facility, you know, to what extent you can do it as a long-term sustainable solution. The, the thing I would say, though, is because we know that we are not yet in a situation where that limit is going to be tested, I kind of regard it as slightly irrelevant. Like, we know that, we know that it's not something to, to worry about. But in any case, Neither of these things are analogous to a credit card, right? If if I get stuck in credit card debt, it's that's it, not because like banks suddenly are like, oh, we're no longer interested in investing in in Stephen's debt. It's because I do not have money to pay back off my credit card debt, right? Like it just like it's just not a useful comparison point. I suspect one of the underlying problems is that the use of it is a neutral position between. The analogy of you know, Labour's fiscal credibility rule, and I, I see no economic argument as to why they will end up with. I imagine they'll do something. They'll, they'll do something to try and be like, "Oh, our fiscal credibility, our new rule, it's it's very analyst dodgy, and it, it, it's nowhere near as like crazy as John McDonald's rule." And you'll look at it and be like, "This is John McDonald's rule," just as like <laughs> actually John McDonald's rule was like basically like Ed Balls's rule, but like much more explicit about like what you do at the lower bound. So basically, like the bit, then like Ed Balls would be like, and mumble mumble in a lot of circumstances would be a lot more generous. Mumble mumble was just like more. And I, but yeah, it will broadly be the same. But crucially, I think it's where the fact that like there is no one and there has never been someone explicitly arguing from a party political perspective, well, it's not like that. So balance becomes like going, well, like, yeah, it is like that because you both semi act like it is like a household. Now I think it comes back to Albert's point. It's one of those things where like, Political debate needs to not only involve political parties, particularly outside elections on TV. You know, if you were to get like an economist from the right and an economist from the left, 
statistically speaking, both of them would be like, look, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's cool. And and just yet, like, and I think that is the kind of the central thing that needs to happen is a culture change in terms of who gets on. But also, and this is the thing I'm not going to pretend I know the answer to, is is should the Labour Party and other like parties of the left and centre left when they're in opposition be willing to expend large amounts of political capital arguing against that analogy in a kind of like because this is one of the difficulties that parties have is that any other organization in the world would go okay well we're going to take the l for this five years we're going to accept and we're not going to advance our electoral interest we're going to advance our policy argument and then this will make it easier in the long term for us to win next term right like just as businesses invest counter cyclically all the time but if a party leader stands up and goes guys i have a counter cyclical strategy to win elections in the long term I mean, can you imagine? Like, just it's not, it's 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 nothing doing. So it is really difficult, and I'm not going to pretend I have like a solution to it. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get twelve weeks for twelve pounds. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe twelve. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. We have a question from Ewan. He says, in Tuesday's morning call, Alva talked about Labour trying to choose between all three options on a Brexit deal. Vote for, against or abstain. Isn't there a fourth option? Just make it a free vote. Given the risks discussed on recent podcasts of giving MPs a taste for a rebellion, why do parties insist on whipping votes that just don't matter rather than letting MPs make their own choices? Alva, do you want to answer this first, considering it's uh, in response to your newsletter? So, yeah, thanks, Ewan, for letting us plug Morning Call on the podcast. This is called Joined Up Journalism. So if you don't subscribe, you should. I actually I'm pleased that we got a question on this because I thought that the case against a free vote was made in the piece, but maybe it's worth just being a bit more explicit on it. So first to kind of fill people in who shockingly don't subscribe to Morning Call, I was just basically reporting on a meeting that was held of the Parliamentary Labour Party earlier this week where Rachel Reeves, who's responsible for the Brexit brief, was filling MPs in on her current thinking along with Keir Starmer on how they should vote on a possible Brexit deal. There obviously isn't a deal to vote on yet but they're already having the discussion and it's a it's a funny mixture of the leadership already knowing how it wants to go but also trying to have a discussion about it and so their view is that Labour should probably vote for a deal with the big caveat that they are going to look at the deal in detail 
first if there is one but that there's a strong case for backing a deal as opposed to abstaining and those are the two main options it's basically just not expected that Labour would vote against because they have broadly accepted that Brexit should happen and there are no plans to to block the deal or anything like that so the two options are kind of framed as abstaining or voting for the deal but the view is that abstaining would look like a preference for no deal even though it's obviously academic because how Labour votes on this given the huge Tory majority will make absolutely no difference but it does matter in terms of how you signal your position on things and so Labour's view is that it would be better to signal that they are supportive of the idea of Brexit and willing to be constructive. And part of the case made for that is the case against no deal, but also that whatever deal is negotiated could be used as a base for Labour to improve on later if it was ever in government. So in the piece, I referenced sort of the the mixed feelings of Labour Remainers on this, who are obviously ideologically completely opposed to Brexit uh, still and even though a deal would almost definitely be better than no deal this is still going to be a very hard Brexit and one that they would have like grave difficulties with but I suppose the case against a free vote is the one that is one that actually Labour Remainers themselves were making in the piece that basically there's a consensus even among people who are are very, very opposed to Brexit full stop, that Labour needs to be acting like a government in waiting and governments in waiting can't really afford to have free votes on, on big policies like this. That if you want to signal as a party where you stand on something, and in this case, you want to signal to voters that your position has basically changed, that you accept that Brexit should, should happen and you're trying to draw a line under it, in that case, the leadership needs to, to take a firm decision, which probably means not not abstaining because that also looks like an abdication of, of decision making, needs to take a firm decision and then everyone needs to row in behind it so that you send one clear, firm message. And even Remain MPs, when they're weighing this up, mention that case, the case for decisive leadership and for decisive messaging as one of the main reasons for them not to abstain on it but to vote for a deal because they appreciate the value of good discipline and firm messaging and so they've been kind of complimenting the leadership on this even though they themselves feel deeply conflicted about it. What do the two of you think about this one about firstly the value or otherwise of free votes on this kind of thing but also how how do you think Labour is handling this discussion so far do you think that leaning towards voting for a deal is the right call, Stephen? I mean, so bluntly, I don't really agree with your characterisation of where middle opinion in the PLP is at. There are a variety of reasons why I don't think that the Zoom call on Monday was particularly representative, not least because, like, Zoom is like a weird... Yeah, it's a weird arena. It's not very good for being confrontative. And, like, but all of the, like, Remain MPs who, like, have been quoted as coming out for it, right? Like... Yeah, like to take like, yeah, just off the top of my head, like Hillary Benn wanted us to be in the EEA. 
Yvette Cooper never really reached a position, but she very much was not a second referendum person. Rachel Reeves is in that, like, Keir Starmer-like group of people who were like, you know, come on, guys, we can't we can't not stop it. We can't not stop it. Oh, I don't want to vote for that. Oh, we're deadlocked. Oh, I guess I'm a second referendum now. So, which is one of the reasons why she was picked, right? She and Starmer have broadly a timid set of priors on this issue. And then, like, lots of the other people who've spoken out on it, like Harriet Harman, Ditto, like, was someone who actually had, like, a much more robust anti-PV position on it for a while, given how... Remainery her constituency is but there are still lots of MPs who are very much like well okay like of course Brexit has happened now right so the decision architecture has changed right it's no longer like stop Brexit have Brexit it's no deal this Brexit deal our Brexit position now the reason why a free vote doesn't work isn't like you, you can't have a situation where parties don't have positions on like central issues of like trade and the economy yeah, I mean, to take, like, whether or not broadband should be free at the point of use, right, that has huge implications for the rest of your economic strategy, right? Like, so you can't, like, be like, our official position on it is, yeah, maybe. And Brexit is like that. The argument that lots of Labour MPs will make is, look, it's not going to be the centrepiece of our political offer, but we will go into the 2024 election seeking a different relationship with the EU. And we need to, like, argue for and unify around that now, rather than be like, yeah, we're going to dip our hands in the blood and vote for this deal, which is like the argument which leads some people to argue for abstention. Yeah, and kind of like, well, look, you're so divided, we, we can't afford to let your divisions cause a no deal Brexit. But we still don't like this deal. And we would do more on workers' rights, more on. And that was also the argument that was happening in, in the NEC meeting as well. So... There's like that kind of position of abstention. And there's the ones who are like, well, we need to send an even bigger signal. And the only way you really send a signal at all is to vote against. So you need to vote against. But then some people go like, yeah, but like they're so divided. If we vote against, we end up with no deal. And some people kind of go like, well, look, we're no longer involved in we're no longer involved in shaping this. Right. It's not like the last parliament where we were to blame. They have a big majority. It's it's their problem. And those are essentially the three, the three. And then, of course, there's the kind of position which I basically think the leadership will end up on because like that's where all of the reluctant remainers which is basically i mean like one of the like fascinating dynamics is that a bunch of corbynites have decided it's in their interest to pretend that keir starmer was a committed remainer who just refused to see the evidence and like a bunch of people around keir starmer thinking it's in their interest to be like oh yeah keir had like a really clever strategy he played it really brilliantly it's like his strategy was to keep the labor party together and he went on a number of positions and cannot be reconciled with one another. But I suspect that because most of the MPs who are in the Keir space on how the referendum, not people necessarily in the Keir space in, in other issues, are in the like, we need to send a signal, let's vote for. I think they will end up voting for, but there will, I imagine, be rebellions on that. But you can't be like, oh, let's just swerve it on an issue like Brexit. It has so many other run-on implications. It's just like, you can't be like, we don't have a position on income tax. We just decide that by a free vote. It doesn't work. Yeah, and I think for this particular vote coming up, because like you and our questioner does hint at in his question, Labour aren't going to be able to change the course of, of that vote on the deal if there is one. So really what Keir Starmer will be using it for will be the things that, that he needs to show about himself and his leadership and his party, you know, up until 2024, which will be, you know, that he's decisive, that he's not a Remainer and that his party is generally united. So I suppose 
those are going to be re- the the real priorities for him in what in whatever decision that he makes because I do think although we've spoken about the different positions that he took and the way that he was sort of forced into some of those positions because of trying to to maintain unity and in the Labour Party and in the shadow cabinet and and all sorts of other um, political realities that were playing out, often contradicting themselves at the time. You know, I'm not saying it was easy. I do think there is a perception that he is someone who dragged the party towards that second referendum position that was a mistake in the election. He was even asked about it in his Desert Island Discs. So I do think one of his priorities will be to try and show that he's not trying to obstruct Brexit in any way. And that's going to be difficult to do if if you oppose the deal, because... I don't think it really suggests to to your average voter that Labour are opting for for no deal. It suggests to them that they don't want Brexit, which was always a bit of a perception that hung around the party in those years. So I think that will probably be the driving force of the decision. And then in terms of trying to show a united party, that's going to be tricky, particularly if he decided to, as our questioner su- suggests he could do, let's MPs vote in the in the way that they, they want to in their hearts. So I, I doubt that that will happen for that reason. Nevertheless, this kind of vote could, could expose a Labour Party divided still. It's often easy. And this, I think, was actually like, you know, if you ask me what I thought the real, actual, accurate criticism of Keir Starmer's approach to Brexit in the last parliament was, the floor of Labour's Brexit position and actually it's pre-Brexit position you know arguably since Gordon Brown didn't turn up to sign Lisbon was this idea of like oh well we're divided this is electorally uncomfortable for us so if we can unify around not talking about it so I mean, you can't unify about not talking about electorally salient issues right not to disinter like our arguments about the other abstentions they've gone through but I suspect that will be proven with the various kind of like no culture wars please approaches that they've taken which isn't you kind of can't swerve these things by just not talking about them. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening.